Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Law, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Jane Richards, and today I have the great pleasure of interviewing a scholar who I've long admired. That's Dr. Lucy Series, and we're going to be talking about her book, Deprivation of Liberty in the Shadows of the Institution. It's a new one out. It was published by Bristol University Press in 2022. Just to introduce Lucy a little, she is a lecturer at the School for Policy Studies at the University of Bristol. Lucy, welcome to the show. Hi, Jane. Um, Now, just to get us started, can you tell me a little bit about yourself and how you came to write Deprivation of Liberty in the Shadows of the Institution? Great. Thanks, Jane. Um, Well, it it came out of a a bigger research project, um, which which actually I'm still finishing up, uh, which was funded by Wellcome. And this research project was uh, was grappling really with a, a series of paradoxes around um, some English and Welsh legislation called the Mental Capacity Act. So um, for listeners who haven't heard of it, the Mental Capacity Act is a 2005 statute in England, and it regulates when uh, people are considered to be able to make decisions uh, for themselves about their lives and when they're considered to lack the mental capacity to do so because of uh, cognitive impairment, for example, or or a mental health problem or another disability or disturbance of the mind or brain, as the statute calls it. And when the Mental Capacity Act was introduced in England and Wales, it was um, it was presented as really empowering legislation, and it's still I think it's still held in very high regard, uh, particularly by uh, practitioners who work with the legislation. Um, it's influenced similar statutes around the world. Um, so, so there's actually a growing number of statutes globally that use bits of the Mental Capacity Act. So, for example, it's functional approach to mental capacity. Um, and it was seen as replacing kind of more old-fashioned and paternalistic uh, types of law like guardianship. Um, and it's also sometimes contrasted with uh, mental health law, uh, which is frameworks for civil commitment and uh, involuntary treatment in hospital on on mental health related grounds, um, and, w- and what interested me is that uh, this statute has this very empowering reputation. But if you if you actually dissect it legally, if you if you if you actually looked at what the statute is doing as a matter of law, it's actually providing it, it doesn't kind of give people rights in the in the conventional sense of oh you you now have a right to do this that or the other. What it what it actually does is it says in these circumstances, we can do things to people that we would normally not be allowed to do without their consent. And we can take decisions on their behalf uh, that would normally be that person's to take. And and sometimes those decisions might reflect what that individual wants, and sometimes they might not. So so globally, we we now call these kind of frameworks substitute decision-making law. It's a substitute decision-making law. Um, It's got its uh, kind of conceptual roots in guardianship. It, it is a kind of guardianship, but it works very, very differently to, to guardianship in most other countries. Um, and in 2007, the Mental Capacity Act was amended with, with a kind of additional framework um, contained in some schedules at the end called the Deprivation of Liberty Safeguards. And these Deprivation of Liberty Safeguards are, are a kind of legal framework that regulates um care arrangements that amount to a deprivation of liberty um, under in the meaning of Article 5 of the European Convention, the right to liberty. And 
so, so, so the Mental Capacity Act, this empowering statute, actually contains a detention framework. Um, and that, that's sort of always been seen as a bit of a kind of ugly appendage to the Mental Capacity Act. It's not really in keeping with this idea of empowerment, um, but, it, but it does exist. And following this High Court ruling in 2014, known as Cheshire, sorry, Supreme Court ruling in 2014, known as Cheshire West, where the Supreme Court was asked, what does deprivation of liberty mean for people, say, with learning disabilities um, or other kind of impairments affecting mental capacity who live in the community? And the Supreme Court handed down this uh, way of thinking about deprivation of liberty, which has become known as the acid test. And they said, if a person is subject to continuous supervision and control and they are not free to leave and they're not consenting validly to that arrangement, then they're deprived of their liberty and they need these safeguards. And what happened following Cheshire West is that within very, very quickly, the number of people categorised as deprived of their liberty in England and Wales rose from under 20,000 to today it's estimated to be around 300,000, um, some of which are currently regulated under these deprivation of liberty safeguards. Some have to be regulated in other ways through the courts. And we're going to introduce a framework maybe next year, maybe not, called the Liberty Protection Safeguards, which, which will provide kind of more lightweight and flexible framework for regulating these detentions. The paradox that this book has ended up addressing is, how on earth did we get to a situation where we have this legislation that's, that's championed as empowering, that is implicated in detention on a kind of unprecedented scale in British history? Um, we have, if, if, you, if you take these statistics seriously, and, and I think we should, then, then this means that there are more people detained in Britain's care homes than its prisons. And there are more people detained in, in connection with health and care today than there were at the height of the kind of era of the big institutions. And that, 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 that's kind of inherently jarring and paradoxical and, and, and I think troubling. So this book began as a chapter in a different book about the, the Mental Capacity Act as a whole. And then, then it became an article that grew out of hand and, and it ended up becoming a, a, a quite a long book of, of kind of saying, well, how on earth did we get here? Why are we doing this? Um, and what, what are the implications of regulating so much care as a deprivation of liberty? Um, so, so that's how I ended up writing this book. Um, it, it's grappling with this, this, I think, one of the most interesting and peculiar paradoxes of the Mental Capacity Act. So perhaps we can talk a little bit more about this detention framework, because one of the key themes that comes through in the book is the difference between social care and mental health detention. Can you tell me a little bit more about this? Yeah, so I should think wherever they live in the world, most listeners here are familiar with um, with, with what I'm calling mental health detention. So that is, um, sometimes it's called civil commitment powers, but it's, it's legal frameworks um, that in England at least have a very, very long uh, history, which allow people who are uh, constructed as suffering from mental health problems, mental disorders, to be detained in hospital, usually, um, on the grounds that they are 
mentally unwell and they need treatment and that they're posing a risk to themselves or others. And the logics of mental health detention are that through this um, kind of unpleasant, but in, in the way that the law thinks about itself, necessary intervention, we're going to treat that person, we're going to manage the risks and, and they in society will be the better for it. Um, so that mental health detention is, is well known. It's, um, it's very controversial, particularly uh, in the wake of the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. Um, and, and there are rightly lots and lots of discussions and debates about mental health detention and its validity and, its, uh, and the human rights issues it raises um, and the impacts on, on different populations affected by it. Um, and but this book that I've written is not really focusing on mental health detention. I'm calling attention to a different type of deprivation of liberty. Um, and I, I've given it a name, social care detention, because I think we need to understand that it's very different from mental health detention. So social care detention, as, as I use it, means uh, living arrangements in the community and by the community, I, I, I really do just mean not in hospitals. So that could be people in a care home um, or a nursing home. Uh, it might be some other kind of residential facility that doesn't uh, present as a hospital would. Or, or it could be people living in, um, in settings like supported living, assisted living, independent living. It could be people living in their own homes with support um, or, or care. It could even be people living with families. So it, it covers a really diverse range of living arrangements. Um, and in England and Wales, we, we think of these living arrangements as, as social care. And that's really to distinguish them from, from the kind of healthcare nexus of, of hospitals and the NHS and clinicians and, and medics. So social care is, is a different domain. In England and Wales, it's, uh, it kind of falls under the, um, the kind of remit of local authorities rather than the NHS. Uh, it tends to be led by social work rather than medical professionals, although there are many, many professionals in, involved in social care. So it's, uh, OTs and psychologists and nurses even can play quite a big role in it. Um, and social care uh, is, is used by many different populations, um, but for the populations affected by social care detention, it tends to be the biggest population is people living with dementia. Um, so more than half of applications to deprive people of their liberty under this Mental Capacity Act framework of safeguards involve people living with dementia. Um, another significantly sized subgroup is people with learning disabilities, uh, people with autism, people with brain injuries, perhaps uh, neurodegenerative conditions. Um, and all of these conditions have something quite important in common, which is that they're, they're long term. So the logics of mental health detention is that you could uh, you can actually treat people and you can either cure them or you can certainly bring them to a much better place through this intervention of hospital treatment. The logics of social care detention are about, I mean, sometimes there is a treatment element tied into this, but but for the most part, this is about actually managing people's lives. This is, social care is where people live their lives. And social care detention is, is really significant because it means people are living large chunks, if not the whole of their lives, in situations that amount to a deprivation of liberty under Article 5 of the European Convention. 
Um, so there's a there's a very different temporal dimension. There's a very different spatial dimension, and it, it's got a much bigger spread. Um, it's got different professionals involved. Um, the, the logics of it are different. So we're not in the business of trying to cure people. Um, we're in the business of trying to uh, kind of manage their long-term living arrangements. And, and there are all kinds of uh, risks and problems that social care detention might be tied up in. So, for example, one of the most common is about people, whether people can continue living in their own homes or whether they should move into residential care Um that's, that's quite a common transition for older people, but also for some people with learning disabilities or autism or brain injury. Um, so social care detention frameworks might be implicated in the question of, do, do they want to do that? How do they feel about that? Can they just leave if they want to? Um, but, but it can also be people who are living in their own homes under certain restrictions to keep them safe. Um, and those restrictions can range from kind of, almost an invisible set of uh, techniques where somebody's life is set up in such a way that somebody always has a kind of eye on them. Somebody always knows what they're up to, what they're doing. Um, but they very rarely, if ever, have to actually intervene to keep them safe. Um, and so that person lives within that living arrangement quite freely, except that that freedom is kind of always within this um, a kind of bigger enclosure that's under somebody else's control. Um, so you have this at one end of the spectrum, right through to people who, although they're not in hospital, may still be being treated in really interventionist ways that we would associate more with hospitals. So I've worked myself in community settings with people with learning disabilities and autism who were frequently restrained, sometimes in really very violent and forceful ways, uh, who were sedated using strong psychotropic drugs, uh, secluded, not not in a kind of seclusion room, although you can find those in community settings, but literally locked in their bedrooms. Um, so social care detention ranges from people who are living um, living lives that we, we probably don't really want to label as detention, actually, um, right through to things that we look at and think, oh, I mean, yes, that is very restrictive. And that does look a lot like what's happened to people in psychiatric hospital settings. Um, so yeah, so it's so it's it's very different from mental health detention in terms of its locus, its logics, its temporalities, the professionals, what we're trying to do, um, and it's got a much bigger scale and range, I would say as well. I'll come back to the second part of the book in just a moment, but turning first, firstly to the first part, you open the book, and I'm just going to quote to you um, some of the first signs of the book. It says. The socio-legal landscape of care is haunted by its carceral past. Post-carceral ideology takes aim not only at the carceral era's buildings, but it's at its institutionalising core. Can you expand a bit upon about what you mean by this context, and especially in the context of the book? Because the book was really rich historically. It gave me a new level of understanding about ideas and attitudes of the past and how they've become legislatively entrenched. So, firstly, social care detention, as I've just defined it, exists because of modern human rights frameworks. So, so social care detention, I think of as a regulatory framing that we've imposed over a particular material reality. So, so to unpack that a bit, what I'm saying is there are these things happening 
in, in community care today. And they're happening in England and Wales, and they're also happening in many, many other countries. They're happening in Australia, in Canada, the USA, many European countries. Um, they're happening in much more extreme forms in, in other countries. So uh, some of your listeners may have seen some of the footage of what was happening to disabled people in Ukrainian um, homes for disabled people, which is really horrifying. Um, and, we, and we know from work by... Uh, third sector organizations and, and cases that have been in the European Court of Human Rights, that some Central and Eastern European countries still have very, very institutional um, care arrangements for, for people with disabilities and dementia. So we have these material practices that are happening and they are restrictive and they are coercive and they are supervisory and they are troubling. And then we have the secondary question of, well, what do we call that and, and should we regulate it? And if so, how do we regulate it? And in England and Wales, we've gone on a particular journey where we've ended up regulating this as a deprivation of liberty. So other countries haven't been on that journey. Many countries have. And in the book, I talk about the countries that have. But there are parts of the world where there are similar debates but it's not being regulated as a deprivation of liberty. So Australia and France are good examples. Um, the Australian government and the French government are highly resistant to the idea that if you put somebody in a care home and you subject them to restraint and restrictions and supervision and control and you do not let them leave, they're highly resistant to the idea that that's detention. Um, but in Australia, they will recognise that those are restrictive practices. So they're regulated as a restrictive practice instead. And that's quite a different way of thinking about it. In England and Wales, we regulate this as detention. And that's linked to a bunch of litigation that's happened in Europe and in the domestic courts. Um, so there, there are several kind of keystone cases here. Uh, the first one is, is from England, actually, and it's, it's a case called Bournewood. Um, the Bournewood case concerned a guy with learning disabilities and autism uh, who had grown up actually in one of these old horrifying long-stay hospitals for people with learning disabilities. And in the 90s, when Britain was trying to close down these settings and get people out, he was uh, resettled to live with a, a couple who were known to history as Mr. and Mrs. E um, in, in, a, in a living arrangement that, that uh, at the time people called it adult fostering, which sounds terribly paternalistic. I, I don't think Mr. and Mrs. E called it that, but he lived with them as if he was their family, as their family. Um, and he, by all accounts, he was doing very well there and living a good life. And one day, he became very distressed at his day centre. Um, he became quite agitated and a, a social worker and a GP took the decision to, to take him into hospital. He was sedated um, and they actually took him back, ironically, to the hospital where he, he'd spent most of his life. And HL is, is autistic and he's non-speaking. Okay, so he's not going to say, excuse me, you know, how dare you? <laughs> These are my rights. I'm not coming with you. Um, he's, he also needed a lot of support to, to, to travel. So he wouldn't have tried to leave because he would have needed assistance to do that. He wouldn't have known how to. And he was, he was sedated. And so the professionals decided, well, he's not objecting. He's not resisting. Therefore, he's not deprived of his liberty. So they just admitted him informally in his best interest. So there was no legal regulatory framework around that admission. He was just there. Um, 
And the family who'd been looking after him, Mr. and Mrs. E, tried to visit him and tried to get him out. And they were told by the doctors, uh, no, I'm sorry, you can't take him home. He's here. It's in his best interest. We know what's best. And also, you can't visit him because if you visit him, he might try and leave with you and we don't want that. Um, and fortunately for HL and fortunately for history, they were um, they were fighters, Mr. and Mrs. E. And so they took the hospital to court. And th- at that time, England and Wales and the UK didn't have the European Convention directly incorporated into domestic law. So they argued that he was being falsely imprisoned, which is uh, something that comes out of tort law. And they they judicially reviewed the decision to admit him. Uh, they also sought a writ of habeas corpus. I mean, they really just threw everything in English law they could throw at this. And um, it went to the Court of Appeal and the Court of Appeal agreed that he was detained, actually, and that the Mental Health Act should have been used. And for HL, this was really positive because what that meant is once the Mental Health Act was in play, his family, his carers could trigger a tribunal hearing to decide whether he really should be in hospital or not. And they managed to get an independent psychiatric report, which said, no, he shouldn't. So HL gets home. But what the the implication of this ruling was uh, that that if HL was detained, then so were tens of thousands of other people like him. Now, some of those were people with learning disabilities or dementia in hospitals who were just there informally. Um, they were sometimes called the de facto detained, and some of them were in care homes and nursing homes. And this um, this this really set um, set care providers, in particular, and hospitals in in quite a tiz because. The Mental Health Act is quite a resource-intensive piece of legal machinery. Um, it's it's kind of got this whole uh, stigma attached to it. It's got this whole baggage, um, and they, I think, more than more fundamentally, they just didn't see what they were doing as detaining people. They saw what they were doing as acting in people's best interests. And if people were resisting, like HL was, if they were distressed or, or self-injuring or, or saying, I want to go home, for these particular populations, it just wasn't viewed in the same way that it would be viewed for somebody who was more articulate and didn't have a cognitive impairment saying, I don't want to be here, I want to go home. It wasn't really viewed as real resistance. It was viewed as kind of... Um, not being sufficiently purposeful uh, or persistent and therefore not needing these legal safeguards. So the case was then appealed by the hospital because it had such big implications for for other hospitals and other care providers. And in the House of Lords, the the highest court hearing in in England, in UK at that time, all these providers and and the Mental Health Act Commission and people piled in and said, "If if HL is detained, we're in deep Shit, sorry. You probably want to edit that out, Jane. Um, (laughs) And the House of Lords heard them, didn't hear HL because he's non-speaking, doesn't attend court and and didn't really hear the evidence that actually maybe he was incredibly distressed. Um, They just heard that he wasn't resisting, which is what the professional said. Um, And they concluded that because he hadn't actually tried to leave and he hadn't verbally objected, therefore he wasn't detained and therefore it was fine. Uh, There was one judge called Lord Stein who said it was an absolute fairy tale that he was free to leave. If he had tried to leave, they'd have stopped him. He was under complete supervision and control. Um, But even Lord Stein said, well, look, even if he was detained, the professionals had a defence under the common law doctrine of necessity. So, So even if he was detained, you still don't need safeguards. 
Now, this is obviously really unsatisfactory, particularly for someone like HL, because his family couldn't have got him home without going to court. And unless you have frameworks like the Mental Health Act, it's impossible for most ordinary people to challenge the kind of institutional behemoth of of health and social care when they make a decision that somebody needs to live in a particular place or be subject to certain restrictions. And that's hard for families and it's virtually impossible for the person who's under that care and supervisory arrangement, particularly if they've got cognitive impairments. So the family went to the European Court of Human Rights and this case was kind of burbling away in the background. Um, As you know, cases can take a very long time to be heard in Europe. Um, whilst the Mental Capacity Act is going through Parliament. So in Parliament, we have this, these debates about how wonderfully empowering this piece of legislation is, uh, which is actually codifying the very doctrine of necessity that the courts have said is, is the basis of informally admitting HL to hospital in his best interests. Um, and as the Mental Capacity Act is going through Parliament, the European Court hands down this ruling in HL versus UK in 2004, which, which really seemed to come as a surprise to, to, to the government, at least, um, which said HL was deprived of his liberty. And the reason they gave is he was subject to continuous supervision and control and he wasn't free to leave. And therefore, he needed legal safeguards to protect his human rights, to protect people like him against, and that the phrase the court uses is really interesting, against uh, misjudgments and professional lapses. So what what the court is really unpicking there is it's saying, look, we know that the professionals thought they were doing the right thing. We know they were acting in good faith, um, but sometimes professionals get it wrong. And unless you've got a framework that says actually someone else should 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 have a look at this, someone independent, and there's clear basis, there's clear threshold criteria for doing this to someone without their consent, um, and there's mechanisms to hold that professional judgment in check to challenge it. Then, um, then, the, then there's a real danger, you know, of arbitrary detention. Um, so, <laughs> the Bournemouth judgment gets handed down. Everyone is in a terrible tears about it, and and they think, well, what can we do? And one answer is extend the Mental Health Act to include this population, which would include tens of thousands. I think the estimate at the time was a hundred thousand people, most of whom had learning disabilities and dementia, and. There was a real cultural sense. Look, we, we can't use the mental health app for people with learning disabilities and dementia. It's not meant for them. It would be too stigmatizing. I, I think one person described it as a sledgehammer to crack a nut in the um in the uh in in the consultations. So there's a real sense <coughs> that these populations don't belong in mental health law. And so what they did was they amended the Mental Capacity Act to insert into it these deprivation of liberty safeguards. And then we have this this kind of battle that gets fought in the courts for the next, um, I'm doing the maths here, 10 years, um, which is about, well, what does deprivation of liberty mean? And some of the judges go big, and some of the judges go small, and it, big and small, and it goes back and forth. And we just end up with all these really contradictory judgments, um, some of which kind of eat their own tails, some of which make no sense, some of which are terribly paternalistic or, or, or even downright offensive if you're disabled. And eventually the whole mess ends up in the Supreme Court for them to deal with. And the Supreme Court is set asked, what is the legal test of deprivation of liberty for people with long-term cognitive impairments? Um, and the case that they look at involves three people, all of whom have learning disabilities. Uh, two of them are uh, sisters. They're young women known as Meg and Meg. 
Um, Mig lives with her foster mummy. She's very happy living with her foster mummy. Um, she, her foster mummy always does know where she is and what she's up to. And she goes to college as well. And the same is true there. Uh, but she's never actually tried to leave. She's never been restrained. Um, she's this she characterizes, I think, one extreme of the spectrum, someone who's very happy where they are and actually kind of living their best life. But they, there is always someone checking that they're safe and potentially intervening if they weren't, but that, that isn't happening in Meg's case. Then there's Meg, her sister, whose foster care arrangements have broken down, which she's sad about. She, want, she wants to go back to her foster arrangement, but it's not possible. And she's in a small, um, they call it a small facility for adolescents with um, challenging behaviour or, or learning disabilities. And she is being restrained and restricted. And she is behaving in ways that would give you pause before describing her as happy. She's, uh, she's um, sometimes has to be restrained to stop her um, lashing out at staff and other people she's living with. And they prescribe her risperidone, which is quite a powerful sedating antipsychotic. But she does also go to college, see her sister, have a social life and so on. And then there's also a guy called P, um, who's a completely separate case that gets conjoined. And P lives in what in Britain we'd call supported living. He's got his own bungalow that he shares with three other guys. There's support staff there uh, around the clock. They take him out um, to places like the pub or garden centres. Um, but but he's also always under their continuous supervision and control. He also just could, none of them could just leave and live somewhere else if they felt like it or someone just rocked up and said, come, come with me. Um, someone would always stop them if that happened. Um, and he, like Meg, is is being restrained sometimes for challenging behaviour. And in his case, sometimes that's self-harm or sometimes it's uh, aggression to others. But but the particularly troubling practice for P is that um, when he lived with his mum, he preferred to be naked. And in the living arrangement he's now in, he wears clothes and he wears pads and he likes to get at his pads and, and he rips them up and he tries to put them in his mouth, including if they're soiled with feces, which is obviously quite dangerous. I mean, it's dangerous from a health perspective in terms of the, the fecal matter, but also he, he literally has choked on it and they've had to take him to hospital for this in the past. So there is, there's a life and death risk to this guy that we can't just dismiss. Um, and to stop him doing this, the carers have been kind of pinning him down, sweeping their fingers around his mouth to get the, the bits of pad out, stop him choking, um, and then trying to clean his mouth, as well as other acts of intervention for, for self-harm and other reasons. And they don't even call this restraint. They call it first aid. There is no recognition by them this is restraint. There's no restraint procedure or training or protocols until this all ends up in court. Um and the Supreme Court basically says, look, all three of them, they use the same test that was used in HL's case, that all three of them are subject to continuous supervision and control. They're not free to leave. They're not consenting because they lack capacity. And so therefore, they can't give a legally valid consent. Therefore, they're deprived of their liberty. Therefore, they need legal safeguards. And when Lady Hale, who gave the leading judgment, delivered this, she's, she really emphasised, right, she was very upfront about the policy behind this. She said, if they're not deprived of their liberty, then nobody else is coming in to look at the care and look at the restrictions and check it's really in their best interests. So it was about inserting a layer of independent scrutiny and challenge into sometimes really quite restrictive care arrangements. Um, 
And the reason we had to do that is because, as she said, there just was nothing else. The, everything was really being done by the professionals who were, who were kind of make, invested in the decision. They were, they were either doing the assessments and making the care arrangements and the care plans or they were delivering it. So it was about bringing in external professionals to look at things and say, could we do this in a different way? And actually, interestingly, in, in the case of P, the guy in supported living who's, who's eating these pads, the independent social worker who's brought in in the litigation to do an assessment of him says, well, you, you could just wear dress him in clothes where he can't access his pads and then you won't need to restrain him all the time to address this problem. Um, so, that, so interestingly, the case itself demonstrates that having that external input can, can reduce restriction. Um, so that's how we ended up where we are today. But the book is, is, is kind of telling a, a deeper history about, well, how did we end up with all these people in these kind of unregulated, restrictive living arrangements in the first place? Why didn't why did we find it so jarring to describe them as deprived of their liberty? And why was the mental health act viewed as totally inappropriate for this population and this set of problems? That's the first half of the book. And then the second half of the book is saying, what happens when you start to regulate all this care as a deprivation of liberty? Uh, what what does it actually do? Does it make things better? Does it create problems of its own? Um, what are the implications of this? For, because many many other countries are starting to follow us down this path, so they can they can read the book and learn <laughs> before they do. I think that this is a good place to pick up on the themes that come through in the second part of the book, as you've just provided this really fantastic context. So turning to the oddness of what's actually happened in the law, in regulation, and in practice. And linking this with the regulatory framework, which is being imposed on what's already happening on the ground, which itself imports its own specific locus, logic and temporality. Now, looking at what's happening, can you comment on what we should be aiming for? Yeah, so I I loved writing the first part of this book, actually. I really enjoyed diving into that that history. It was fascinating. Um, And I I should really stress that, that I'm kind of I'm a small person standing on the shoulders of giants in writing that part because I had the benefit of um, working in a discipline that's had a lot of people think about how we regulate deprivation of liberty in in mental health settings in particular so um, people like Castell and Unsworth and Phil Fennell have are the people who coined this phrase the carceral era and the post-carceral era and what what they were talking about is um in the late 18th century, uh, th- there were these um, places called madhouses. And madhouses uh, were, were, were used, and they'd been used for some time, to, uh, I'm just going to say it's a generous label, to accommodate um, so- societies unwanted. So um, people might be placed in a madhouse by their family. Um, so you you would find a madhouse and you would pay the madhouse keeper to confine your wife or your mother or your husband or your uh, embarrassing sibling or something. And and they, they would do that. So you would take them there. You would say, I'll pay you this much a month and I just want you to make sure they're fed and keep them locked up and don't let them out. And the madhouse keeper would do that. And the the other and those tended to be smaller madhouses. So and they would often be literally just houses, like houses on your street in your village, and that someone had sort of decided to kind of board people. But it was a form of boarding where you didn't really get any say in it. You know, you couldn't just leave. Um, and then there were also parishes who were who were discharging kind of poor law functions would board people out 
who needed care and some people uh, needed different kinds of care because they had uh, what we today would label mental illness or learning disability or something. But then they were, they were given these labels mad or lunatic or idiot or something. And they would be boarded out in madhouses too. Um, some madhouses, according to historians of the period, were, were I think they're probably pretty unpleasant, to be honest, for the people in them. But the historians of the period say some were okay and some were really, truly awful. You know, you might be sleeping naked on a bed of straw uh, with not enough to eat and you might be beaten and whipped and chained up. I mean, they there were some really horrific practices. And so during the 18th century, we get these scandals about madhouses. And, and the way the scandals are narrated in court and in the media by journalists like Daniel Defoe, is that there are these two problems. And the first problem that, that people start narrating, people like Defoe, is wrongful confinement. So this idea that people are just using madhouses to lock up their relatives um, because perhaps, uh, so Defoe uses this example, he's saying, you know, men are locking up their wives so they can go off and have mistresses freely, or or maybe they're locking somebody up to save the family inheritance or something. Um, and we see these cases that where people who have been confined to madhouses by their relatives, perhaps by their mother or their husband or something, manage to get a friend on the outside to come looking for them. And that friend goes to court and um, and ask for a writ of habeas corpus, which is this kind of ancient remedy uh, linked to the right to liberty. And the courts um, then ask the madhouse keeper, what's your justification for keeping this person? And they send a doctor to decide whether the person's truly mad or not. Um, and if the doctor says, yes, they are mad, then the court says, oh, that's fine, carry on. And if the doctor says they're not mad, then the court says, you know, you must let that person go. And so these start to get into the public eye. And then we have these scandals about the horrifying treatment that people are having in some of these places and, and also in charitable hospitals like Bethlehem. So the two problems uh, get brought together in this parliamentary committee chaired by Sir Thomas Townsend. Um, and he narrates the problems as the problem of wrongful confinement, how people are admitted to and can get out of these places. And then the second problem is their treatment during confinement. Um, and these, the, and I, I just want to pause there and say there are other ways of framing the problem. And I think actually the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities is, is a really powerful instrument because it invites us to think about a different framing. And the different framing of the problem from the perspective of the convention is maybe we just shouldn't be putting people in these places full stop. <laughs> like maybe we should think of other ways of responding to disability and difference and distress. Um, but putting that to one side, that's the, that's the ancient framing going back to the 18th century is one problem is how do people get in and how do they get out? And the other problem is assuming that some people should be in there in the first place, how should they be treated? So the underlying logic of what I come to call the law of institutions is that institutions serve a necessary function, but they are also posing a social threat. So we're going to have this regulatory framework to keep them in check. And it has two strands. And the first strand is what we now would think of as detention safeguards. And that begins with the Madhouses Act and this requirement for a medical certificate before you admit someone to a madhouse. Um, and, that, and you can draw a line from the Madhouses Act through lunacy legislation right through to the Mental Health Act. And then the second limb is regulation. So if you're keeping more than two people as a lunatic in the 18th century, you have to register. You have to get a license from a commission 
um, and they come and inspect you. And we can draw a line from that right through to the Care Quality Commission today. Um, and so those are the two axes of what I call the law of institutions. And their fundamental logic hasn't changed. The fundamental logic is some people need to be in an institution at least some of the time. We just need checks and balances to make sure it's the right people. And then we also need checks to make sure the way they're being cared for is appropriate. And that's still with us today. So that's the legacy of the carceral era. What starts to happen in the middle of the 20th century, and, 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 and sorry, one more point is, the really fascinating thing about this framework is it was designed to kind of restrain this carceral industry of, of profit-seeking madhouse keepers. And the really interesting thing is you actually see during the 19th century the growth and growth and growth of incarceration. So we have these legal frameworks that are supposed to be holding carceral care in check, but actually they legitimize carceral care because what they say is – it's okay. You know, these aren't these despicable madhouses anymore. We're now going to call them asylums or we're going to call them hospitals. And and actually they're doing a valuable function. And we know they are because we've got these commissions checking up and we're, they're all well regulated and you can't end up in one unless you really are mad because a doctor has certified you and so on. And so they, they throw this veneer of legitimacy over something, a set of practices that at the end of the 18th century were really illegitimate. Um, and that legitimacy enables the rise and rise of the institution so that by uh, 1957, we have a proliferation of different types of institution. We have, um, and we have hundreds of thousands of people in them. Uh, we have people with what have by then come to be called uh, mental illness, we've got people living with dementia, we've got people with learning disabilities, um, all, all kinds of people with cognitive and mental impairments in these places. And in the middle of the 20th century, this suddenly looks very archaic, very problematic, very expensive, and very out of keeping with modern sensibilities. And, and that reflects a whole bunch of changes uh, that were happening from the from the end of the 19th century, really, but they, they get kind of crystallized in this post-war era um, around human rights, around uh, thinking of what was previously known as madness or lunacy as a mental health problem around the rise of the idea of care in the community and the development of social care. Um, and so we start very slowly and it takes decades and decades and decades to wind these places down. And that's what Clive Unsworth and Phil Fennell call the post-carceral era, this era of the winding down of the big institutions, the resettlement of populations in community settings, and these new ideologies, which are about independence and autonomy and choice and control and personalised care. And all of those, independence, autonomy, choice and control and personalised care, can be understood as a reaction against the problem of institutionalisation, the problem that institutionalisation is in itself harmful um, and so that's the paradox of where we've ended up, which is that we're in this era where we've got rid of most of these places and we've got all these very lovely sounding ideologies fluttering about in social care. And yet more people are detained in Britain's care homes than its prisons and more people are detained following Cheshire West than were in 1957. It is very difficult tension. The idea of respecting a person's autonomy choice and control and personhood against real risks that may potentially manifest without intervention. My question then is this, and you have touched upon this already, do you see a way out of the shadows of the institution? Another way you describe this is 
Is there a way beyond the gilded cage? Yeah. So in the book, I distinguish between two groups of kind of people agitating for change. And the first group I would call reformers and the second group I call abolitionists. And that, that's a those phrases I've borrowed from people who've written actually about prison reform and prison abolition, like Liat Ben Moshe, whose work I've I've um, found very useful for, for asking questions of what's happening here. So the reformers accept that a certain level of restriction is necessary in our society. And the question for them is how do we minimize it and reduce it and regulate it and keep it um, in accordance with certain goals, like making sure it's in it's serving somebody's best interests and so on. And Cheshire West and the deprivation of liberty safeguards are reformist in their intent. They were created by really, really well-meaning people, people who really passionately care about the lives of people living in these places. And there's a kind of recognition that a lot of the underlying problems in these settings are not fixable through law. A lot of them are economic, a lot of them are social, a lot of them are, and by economic, I don't just mean not enough money. I also mean the the economic logics of how we do care today in Britain um, and, and, and bureaucratic and administrative problems as well. And so there's a, there's a bunch of professionals that I, call um, empowerment entrepreneurs who work within these deprivation of liberty safeguards. They're often social workers. Some, sometimes there are other professionals and they're often responsible for either the capacity assessment or the best interest assessment or both. And what they do is they look at somebody's care and they look for any which way they can try and leverage more space for freedom and rights for that person. And then they use this reformist machinery of law to try and deliver that. And they they're really impressive people and they're doing the best they can with what they've got, which is not enough. And then you've got the abolitionists who are linked to the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. And they're part of a rich tradition of people who who predate the convention of trying to get these places shut down and trying to make sure that people living outside of older institutions live in real homes, not in kind of quasi-institutions and mini-institutions. And they want to abolish deprivation of liberty in all its forms. Um, and, and, and I suppose... I suppose that when I'm speaking to them, what I'm trying to say is you need to generate a positive conception of what that looks like. Because if you have somebody like Mig, who is living with her foster mother, she's happy. She's Nobody is physically intervening with Mig, or she wasn't at the time of the judgment anyway. She's living the life she wants to live. And it's true. There is somebody always who knows where she is, who's checking that she's safe because she would not be safe around road traffic. And there are, there are dangers out there in the world that are real. Um, or if we think about somebody like P who, who is putting, who is taking very, very serious risks. And I don't think they're the kind of risks that we can say, you know, those are risks that are, are reflecting his kind of inner values and, and so on. Like I, d- I I doubt that's why he's putting incontinence pads in his mouth and choking. Um, And so the abolitionists face a problem, which is how do we stamp out deprivation of liberty if we accept that this acid test definition is important in terms of picking up on restriction for somebody like P and somebody like Mig? And the proposal I have is firstly, 
we need to distinguish between P and Meg. We need to be able to say that someone like Meg actually can consent to her living arrangements and that she can consent by taking seriously what under the convention is framed as her will and preferences and through networks of safeguards and supports, translating that into a legally effective valid consent. I don't think we can do that for Meg and for P who are behaving in ways that signal distress and and, and active intervention and coercion. Um, And then the question is, well, what should our goal be? What are we aiming for? What's the kind of asymptote that we'll never quite reach, but that we should keep on persevering to reach? And for me, I I drew great inspiration through from work on the meaning of home, because if you look at the post-castral era, the phrase that keeps coming up again and again and again is about home. It's about getting people out of institutions and into meaningful homes in the community. And by home, it doesn't mean some building that we've slapped the label home on, like a group home or a care home or even supported housing or so on. Home is is a conceptual it's a set of values and a set of concepts that's linked to the extent to which an individual can manifest their agency in a space. So that plays out in lots of different ways. It means things like, um, does the person have the same say that other people would expect to have about where they live and who they live with? Are the people they're living with people they're in meaningful relationships with, or are they just co-housed? Are they inmates put in the same space by somebody else? Um, do they have control about of what what uh, John O'Brien, the person-centred uh, planning uh, inventor, I suppose, called control of the threshold? Do they get a say in who comes into their home? And can they ask them to leave if they don't like them? Do they have a say over who cares for them and touches their bodies? Is this personal assistance in the true sense? Or is this more like old-fashioned care where we'll send who we jolly well please and you'll be grateful? Um do they have choice and control over their daily rhythms, over their daily activities within the home, choices that most of us would expect to have, for example, over what we eat, how we move about the space, um, or, or are there, for example, locks on the kitchen door or rules about who can go in where and when? Um, who makes the rules in the home is a really great way of getting into the guts of, is this an institution or a home? Um, other questions you can ask are, you know, is the person's identity reflected in that space? Um, you know, most of us, when we live in, in meaningful homes, we, we interact with our material environment in important ways. We make home through messes, through tidying up, through decorating, through gardening, through DIY projects that go horribly wrong or, or that we're very proud of. Uh, we put things up on walls, um, you know, and so on. But in social care, we've got this strange phraseology of personalizing, you know, you personalize your bedroom. And so there's a kind of gesture towards the idea that, you know, people need to leave their imprint on it. But the very fact we need a word for it speaks to this background power dynamic that it's not your, really your space. It's somebody else's space that they're letting you decorate. Um, so looking at how people interact with their material environment um, and how they leave their mark. And then the final point is the whole point of home, not just as humans, actually, but as as simply as living sentient beings, is that it is a space in which um, our identity and our personhood is supported and expressed and can flourish. And there's this beautiful phrase from an academic called Hilda Lindemann, who wrote about people living with dementia at home, and she taught, calls the home scaffolding for the self. And we can contrast this directly with 
people like Goffman's work on institutions, which he describes as so rule bound and so dominated by staff and, and their rules and dictates that they they mortify the self, they do great damage to the self. So my ultimate argument in the book is firstly this, there has to be a way for somebody who under English mental capacity legislation can give a valid consent to their living arrangements if they are reflecting these values around home, if they are serving as a genuine scaffolding for the self, not as a means to an end for somebody else's idea of what's good for that individual, not as a way to change that person, for example, through some ghastly behaviourist intervention or some... Or, and, and, and just because we think that that a place is the best of the available options, and just because we think it might keep somebody safe from greater risks, doesn't mean that it's achieving that goal of home. It just might mean that in our existing society, it's the least bad option. And so this 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 goal of home, meaningful home, is a revolutionary agenda, and it's a radical agenda. It's not a what's the best we can do under the current circumstances reformist agenda. Um, so I don't think the abolitionists will ever quite achieve their goal because there will always be people like P who present risks that I feel that we are morally obliged to take seriously and not simply say he has the right to die choking to death on an incontinence pad. But but P is at a very distant point in a kind of asymptote. And we should be we should keep traveling along that asymptote. We should keep traveling towards meaningful homes for everybody. Um, and 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 meaning and recognizing that they can validly consent to that, um, and that's the journey we should be on. And I think that's that's the post-carceral journey. The question of regulating deprivation of liberty is is the haunting is the haunting from the carceral era. And what we need to do is recognize that for now that might be the best we can do, but but start a new journey towards a better place. This area is very complex and problematic. At the same time. It's necessary, I think, to, as you say, cling on to these narratives of hope in order to move forward. Not at the moment, actually. I'm, I'm disappointed to say. I, I would say yes and no, actually. No, let me reframe. We're still very, very, very much in the shadows of the institution. And actually, I think another way of describing this era, and I'm, I'm not, I think Clive Unsworth might well recognise this if he was still with us today, would be as the, a new carceral era. Um, in which carceral practices haven't vanished when we knock down the old long stays and asylums. They just got transmuted into a new set of ways of supervising and controlling people um, because of demographic changes around growing numbers of older people, um, surviving into older age with with significant care needs, um, including some risks to themselves at times. And because of and this is a success story because growing numbers of people survive brain injury and survive into adulthood with learning disabilities. The number of people who are subject to these coercive and carceral living arrangements is growing. Um, now, at the moment, many people are living, many of those people are living in institutions and many people are living in institutions that we legally recognise as an institution, um, you know, as a care home. It's not legally, it's not their space. Legally, it's someone else's space that they are living in and it's regulated as such. Some of those people are living in spaces that are supposed to be their own home, but which aren't playing out like that in reality. Um, they're they're quasi-institutions or, or kind of um, cloaked institutions might be a better way of putting it. And so the question is, well, how 
do we move away from that? And I think we have to take hope from the fact that not everyone is living like this. There are some very, very hopeful stories out there of people who are living um, in meaningful homes, yet with a similar set of uh, risks or cognitive impairments. And so we need to we need to hold on to those stories. We need to learn from those stories and we need to think about what it would take to rearrange our society to make that the case for everybody. Um, and that right now in Britain today, with the government as, as it is, the economy as it is, attitudes to disabled people and older people as they are, I find it hard to imagine that happening anytime soon. But if we accept that narrative of despair, it w- absolutely won't happen. So we are, I think we're morally obliged to look, f- be realistic, but but look for narratives of hope. Um, there's some brilliant work being done by an organization in Britain called Social Care Future. So if you Google Social Care Future, you'll go to their webpage. Um, and they co-produce uh, with social care users uh, a new vision of what social care should be. And they talk about they, they talk about everybody wants to live in a place that they call home, in their communities where they play a role, doing the things they love with the people they love and doing the things that matter to them. And that that's the vision we need to build. And we need to build it however we can. Um, that could be just voting for a party that sounds like it's going to take this more seriously at the next election. That could be, you know, um, supporting organisations like Social Care Future in their work. It could be thinking about what would that look like legally? How do we make that a reality legally? What would need to change? Um, it means thinking about how, I mean, one of the hardest challenges and one that I'm not equipped to do, how do we completely restructure our economy to enable this? You know, it. We, we hear all the time how dreadfully expensive social care is, what a terrible drag it is on our society, when we should, we should be celebrating the fact that people are living long lives and we should be celebrating the fact that it is possible, there is sufficient wealth, particularly in Western societies, for them to lead long and good lives if we channel it right. Um, yeah, so it's a multi-pronged problem and we can all play a part in it. Now, Lucy, I've taken up a lot of your time, but just before you go, our traditional last question for new books in law, what are you working on now? Okay. Well, I'm finishing off the book that I was meant to be writing in the first place, which this book slightly superseded, which is um, a biography of the Mental Capacity Act. So it's going back to that original question of how did we end up with this really curious piece of legislation that it is at at one and the same time, both some of the most empowering uh, capacity legislation for its time and potentially extremely paternalistic and and, and at times even draconian. And and, and working out where that came from, um, how it maps onto broader changes in society over the last 50 years. And and it's been a really fun thing working on that book because I was lucky enough, um, I used a biographical method, so I kind of immersed myself in... um, in in all sorts of historical records, archives and um, newspapers and uh, obviously academic and legal debates at the time. But I also spoke to a large number of people, around 50 people, who were involved in developing the Act at various stages in its uh, history, and including people who drafted it or campaigned for it or against it or implemented it or um, had views on it either way. And and it's just been a lovely project to work on. Um, and I'm, I'm trying to do all those people justice in, in the next book, um, yeah, which, which will tell its story. 
That sounds absolutely fascinating and I enjoyed this so much. I really can't wait to see what comes out of the project you're working on now and hopefully we can have you back on the show. That'd be wonderful. Thank you. I'd love to. Well, hopefully it will be. (laughs) Now, just to bring it all together, um, I am Jane Richards. I've been speaking with Dr. Lucy Series about her latest book, Deprivation of Liberty in the Shadows of the Institution. It was published by Bristol University Press in 2022. You've been listening to New Books in Law, a channel on the New Books Network. Lucy, thank you for your time. Thanks, Jane. Thanks, everyone, for listening.